After numerous attempts and false starts by the U.S. Congress to implement price controls on drugs and Medicare, the Inflation Reduction Act crossed the finish line into law this August, granting the government the ability to negotiate lower prices for the top-selling drugs and Medicare Parts D and B. I'm Dwayne Schultes, and on this Vital Health Podcast, I'm speaking with Devin Rosenthal, a vice president at NovaQuest Capital Management in Raleigh-Durham, a leading biopharma investment firm where he works on deal structuring and due diligence. Devin sits at ground zero of the potential long-term impacts of the Inflation Reduction Act and currently sitting on the ninth floor right in front of me. Devin, always a pleasure. Good to see you. Likewise, Dwayne. So we met on a virtual webinar in Greece while you were sitting here in North Carolina and I was in a hotel room in Florida. Such is life these days, right? (laughs) Or at least the life over the last couple of years. And here we are now finally meeting face-to-face. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm intrigued by how NovaQuest Capital Management operates. You folks are slightly different from your normal VC in that you're often doing the development stuff when you actually have an asset that's ready to go. How does that position yourselves compared to other firms and, and what do you actually do? Right. So we fill a pretty unique niche within the industry. And it, oftentimes, it's it's hard to condense it down into one simple explanation. A lot of times, it's explaining, okay, we're not venture capital. We're not debt. We're something <laughs> that kind of falls in between the two. And then, then comes all the detail and the nuance behind that. But what we do is we provide non-dilutive, non-controlling, at-risk, product-specific financing, which is a lot to really digest in one statement. But basically, we come in when products have clinical proof-of-concept data. So we're really the post-phase two investment phase. We provide that growth capital that helps companies conduct those phase three studies, maybe some of the early commercialization as well, and get these products onto the market. As far as how we go about that, like I said, it's a little different than equity, a little bit different than debt, but has a little bit of a flavor of both maybe mixed into it. We invest in specific products or development programs. We provide this non-dilutive funding, and so our returns come from a mix of uh, milestones and royalties. We have a little bit of flexibility around how we go about that, and we can talk in some detail about that if sure. it makes sense. But Well, it does. Please, go ahead. Right. And so, really, it's tailored to the specific investment opportunity, and it's specific to both that company's needs, the product development program, and obviously our needs as investors as well. So, a lot of times, if you want a sort of kind of standard NovaQuest investment, it would be putting money into a phase three development program. Uh, we can talk about how we go through and underwrite that as well, but putting money into that phase three development program it's at risk in that we don't see any returns unless that product is successfully approved. Um, If it's approved, then like I said, we have a range of different levers we can pull. So uh, approval milestones, sales milestones, things of that nature, also royalties that we tend to factor in as well. So really the product success is success in our returns, success for the company. And if it's not able to achieve that approval, then like I said, we unfortunately lose alongside the company. Well, welcome to venture capital. Now, it's really interesting because if you look at the data over the last 363 products that have been approved by the FDA, so the last 10-year cohort, you see that roughly, and this is a real differentiator for the U.S. market compared to the global market, particularly in Europe right now, you, you see that you know roughly half, well, 55% of all assets are actually innovated and brought to market at least to approval initially by small biotechs under half a billion dollars, 500 million a year. Is that really the niche you're going into? It's sort of those small companies who have promising assets, but the big companies haven't really come in for size yet. They're kind of, you know, taking a look, sort of seeing what happens. And then you're the folks who sort of like a a bridging loan almost in some ways. I think that's a fair way of looking at it. And really the NovaQuest model has evolved alongside the industry in that 
that way. So initially, NovaQuest investments were targeted more towards big pharma companies uh, because there's certain P&L offset benefits, certain uh, accounting benefits that come with the kind of investing that we do. But as we've seen innovation move more into the small and mid-cap space, as we've seen more of these products being developed there, and then, yes, eventually either being acquired by large pharma companies or companies choosing to commercialize themselves, we've shifted our model to focus more on material capital to these companies in order to enable these development programs. Right. And if, if there's that P&L benefit, that's great. I'd say that's probably not the primary driver of the deals we do these days versus having material capital to really bridge that, call it post-venture phase and pre-debt phase. Um, yeah, what do they used to call it? Death Valley, right? That was sort of what it was always called in business school. Right? Well, I feel like that's also a moving target, right? There's a Death Valley <laughs> after the bench. There's the Death Valley after clinical development. Right? There's a lot of death and a lot of valley. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's really interesting. Do you see movement to specific clinical areas now? Are there certain areas? I mean, this thing goes in fashion following science, but you know what's hot right now, I guess? You know, we're a little uncorrelated or yeah. agnostic in that sense. It's more about where you can both prove your particular development program and ideally where there's some precedent in the area, although you'll see from some of our investments that that's not necessarily a requirement. It's really about, for us, underwriting that data package, underwriting that development program, uh, agreements with regulators and the like, and obviously having some degree of commercial opportunity at the back end, which we have some tailorability around how we approach that. But you know, these companies need to be ongoing concerns and there needs to be some form of returns that we can access there. When those come together, whether it's oncology, whether it's rare disease, whether it's uh, more broad diseases than that, we don't really care as much. That being said, there's obviously trends within these. So uh, indications like oncology yeah, or diseases like NASH, they're going to be harder for us to find an investment that works with our model and that we're comfortable underwriting given past precedents, given failure rates and the like. But the right program in any indication is going to be the one that works for us. Do you think being here in Raleigh-Durham and the tech triangle, as they call it, does that give you a leg up? So really, our investments are global. Really? Um, There's things that I like about living in Raleigh, North Carolina. And there's certainly, (laughs) I'd say we have a leg up with the local companies just by virtue of that proximity and those conversations. But really, our investments are global. Um, I think as the industry goes, that tends to be the case. Our local relationships certainly help out. uh, And we have involvement with those companies. But uh, it really takes place more broadly than that. Do you see any early impacts right now on some of the smaller companies? Is is cash becoming a problem? I mean, I think you see a lot of smaller companies that are getting cash crunched right now. I, I think from our position, it's a little bit interesting in that being a non-dilutive financing source, I'll say maybe there were a few more headwinds when the markets were excessively bullish uh, You know, a year or two ago. Um, who wants to go non-dilutive when your right. stock price is through the roof? There's a lot more companies that are interested <laughs> people, in the kind of financing. A lot of people coming yeah. through the door, Devin, is that what you're saying? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, I mean, the, the sort of joke has been that you know, previously when you had this real bullish market a year or two ago, there were a lot of valuations that probably weren't deserved. Now, when everything's beaten down, you still have a lot of valuations that probably aren't deserved, just in that complete inverse direction. Yeah, exactly. If you don't have the right inflection points at the right time, regardless if your news is still good or status quo or what have you, you see companies getting punished. So there's opportunities for investors like us in that space to do some good and be able to put capital after good programs that maybe aren't being appreciated by the public markets right now. Now, Devin, you personally, you've got a really interesting background. And I often really like talking to people such as yourself who come from a more scientific background and then end up on the finance side. You were a bench scientist, you worked in product development, you even did regulatory stuff before you ended up here. It's rare to find those skill sets. Does that give you a sort of perspective that a lot of people just coming out of you know business school don't have? 
you know, I, I'd love to say it gives me a competitive advantage. It'd be a little <laughs> self-serving to say that, but nonetheless, the industry that we work in here is one that's built on broad-based experience in order to understand really the totality of these development programs. And that's so much intertwined with the success of these companies that it's been beneficial for me having built a background that in many ways parallels the drug development process. Started sure. off as a bench scientist, kind of worked in the scientific space, expanded out from that into clinical development and regulatory affairs, uh, worked for a brief time at a consulting firm as well, so working in that uh, commercial space too, and then really bringing that all together with the work that I do at NovaQuest. Um, given where we sit in the development process with the investments that we're doing, having that broad-based understanding is one that uh, it, it's pretty uniquely suited the experience that I have to the work that we do here. And so it's been a great fit in that way. Um, maybe we're not as involved in the science as an earlier stage venture capital firm would be, but it provides important underpinnings for our review of those later data sets and how clinical development's looking and what the differentiation of a product looks like versus others in the eventual marketplace. Obviously, the rest of that factors in as well. We're talking about regulatory affairs. That's really the cornerstone of a lot of the investing we do is understanding what that regulatory pathway looks like for that product making sure the company has the right agreements in place. And while some may look at regulatory as cumbersome, I'd say it's kind of nice for us as investors because it gives a clear definition, if done right, of what success looks like, at least from an approval standpoint, uh, which helps us in our underwriting process. Well, the regulatory world has certainly gotten a lot more interesting <laughs> over the last, or, or shall we say mercutial, I think might be a more appropriate way. Part of this involves the Inflation Reduction Act. If you look at how it treats small molecules versus large molecules, we're now differentiating the revenue potential of assets based on if they're a small or a large molecule. So there's been a decision in the U.S. Congress that we are going to value small molecules at one point at nine years. That's when we're going to put in price controls. And then large molecules, biologics, essentially, at 13 years. From your perspective, what's the difference between a small molecule and a large molecule when you're looking at it from an investment standpoint? Right. So, I mean, I'll caveat it by saying every investment is going to be different, but really from our perspective, speaking generally, it's a little bit more about those considerations that go in upfront than on the back end. Sure. To explain there, small molecules, again, these are general sort of comments here, but small molecules typically are going to be a bit easier to manufacture in a lot of cases. Uh, it's going to be a little bit more streamlined in that way. And, and it's in many cases going to carry, we'll say a lower comparable cost of goods in order to manufacture. Whereas your large molecules are going to have some additional complexity built in, it's going to be a heightened focus for us as far as how we think about that manufacturing build out and the associated costs with it. So there's those upfront considerations there. On the back end, really where the distinction between the two factors in the most for us, I'd say, would be in the existing considerations around regulatory exclusivity, right. where you have a longer exclusivity tied to large molecules, a shorter one tied to small molecules. Obviously, that becomes less important if we're talking about companies that have patent life that extend well beyond those. But we're already, at least for our investment focus, kind of tied to those concepts in terms of how we approach these two different categories. Do you see this having an impact on your decision right now? If, are you going to start favoring the large molecules over the small molecules just because you have that runway of an extra five years, potentially, of revenue? I'll say at the risk of kind of giving a non-answer, it, it depends. Sure. I'd say right now... In many cases, if we're talking about sort of duration of protection, we already like large molecules because you have that regulatory right. exclusivity. It takes the pressure off of IP. It kind of takes some of that complexity out of things. On the other side, you add complexity, right, in the manufacturing and in the ability to both uh, manufacture effectively to meet approval, then also to meet demand on the back end. You have the costs associated with that, which only matter if they matter, right? Companies can account for these in certain ways right now, and we can get comfortable with that. So 
it's a big, it depends. Um, it really depends what the driving factor for us of that particular product and that particular transaction look like. If it's assurance of a certain runway and it's you know something that's tied to regulatory exclusivity, we already have a bias towards large molecules right. for that. But there's so many other factors that underlie these. It's, it's hard to make any general claim beyond that. One of the things that concerns us about this is there's been a lot of work on sort of re- a resurgence on the small molecules on neurological disorders. There's been some really interesting work there. And we're hearing that this is going to put a lot of pressure on that pathway in particular. Now, you make a point, and we were discussing before we set up today, that you know where you guys sit, you're sitting where the, you know, you've already got a good packet of data, and you're basically coming in to put people over the front end, and your exit's probably three or four years. So you may not be immediately as impacted by that. But do you think that the, you know, Peter Kolchinsky in particular, uh, a well-known venture capitalist up in Boston, he's been extremely adamant about the problems related to small molecules. I mean, do you think that, particularly related to neurological disorders, do you think that has validity? You know, I can't speak as much to Peter's specific comments around this. I think for us, because of both, as you mentioned, the time horizon that we look at sure. for realizing our investments, I don't see this particular aspect as being overly impactful. Um, just given that we're sort of looking at return windows, again, depending on the transaction, within a, we'll say, less than 10-year time frame. And so when we're talking about these uh, Inflation Reduction Act implications for small molecules or large molecules, that's really falling towards the later years and when we're looking to model these transactions out to, or at least modeling these revenues out to. I think there's maybe some conversation we can have around the broader implications for the industry around that. But for our particular investments, I'll say I was honestly a little bit surprised going through and kind of familiarizing myself with the the consequences of this Inflation Reduction Act and really not seeing too much application of this particular piece towards the investments that we do, given the considerations we already uh, typically put in place when we structure these. But if you look at the drugs that are currently in existence that would likely fall into this Venus flytrap of pricing controls when this patent exclusivity cliff is now inserted at nine years and 13 years, the companies that were involved in that analysis, we saw $468 billion of investments in early stage biotech in the, in the United States. I mean, an enormous sum of money. California was $146 billion of that over 10 years, so $14 billion a year. Is there the potential for this to have an unexpected secondary impact on those early stage assets that right now are that free cash flow, that liquidity is actually getting a lot of these things started. Is that a potential problem? I mean, I think anytime you constrain liquidity, you run the risk of either unforeseen or maybe lower probability issues like that manifesting at some point. I think though, I I would never discount the adaptability and uh, the creativity of the pharma industry (laughs) in order to go and find opportunities and and ways to sort of reshape the model. I think we were talking a little bit earlier about how, you know, innovations has shifted to these smaller and mid-sized companies away from big pharma over the last, I don't call it a couple decades. I think this raises the question of what is that next phase going to look like? Maybe this ends up not being an impact. Maybe, though, those free cash flows do constrain some of the M&A activity that would, uh, in, in our markets right now, kind of underlie a lot of this ongoing development. Does that cause companies and, and investors and the like to think more about some of these underventured markets, for example, where a lot of these uh, OPEX costs are a bit lower? You know, I say this sitting here in Raleigh, North Carolina, and thinking about that compared to your Bostons and San Francisco's, and certainly there's smaller markets in the Raleigh-Durham uh, area as well. A little bit of hand-waving around this, um, except to say that you have a lot of investment dollars that are going into early stage companies right now, really focused on the development programs, the opportunity for an exit at the back end. But 
that exit is very much predicated on the success of a product. Right. I would be surprised to see that, yes, constraints on free cash flow, but the winners are still going to rise to the top. And is it, to what extent would this actually impact the amount of winners that are out there and the ability for the industry to support those? Uh, I think that has a bigger question mark attached to it in my yeah. mind. 80 billion a year is what ourselves and the CBO, we sort of landed on the same number with two different methodologies. So we're seeing by 2030, 80 billion being pulled out. Half of the big pharma companies, that's more than half of their EBIT, half of their earnings. It's a pretty substantial. Definitely not a small number. <laughs> no, it's not a small number. It seems like no one on the Hill cared, um, unfortunately, in the conversations we were having. Have you had any feedback from some of the community here, the biotechs and things? What are they saying about this? Are they concerned? I'll say I haven't been a part of too much discussion around this yet. I think a lot of folks are still sort of Trying taking account of, yeah, yeah. You know, this is this has just come forward. Uh, a lot of companies are focused on fundraising today, on that next development milestone. And yes, these are important considerations, um, but for better or for worse, they're not a today consideration, especially if you're talking about sort of smaller companies and the like that are probably not going to be caught up in that first, second, or third round of uh, pricing negotiation considerations there. One of the intriguing things about the IRA is we're now putting in place something that we've seen in Europe, which is the ability for a quote-unquote government to quote-unquote negotiate price. Right. Does a government really negotiate? <laughs> <laughs> You know, that's a good question. Maybe pulling out a piece of what you're saying here, we've been talking in sort of generalizations around effects on the overall industry. It probably makes a lot of sense to focus on how particular niches of it are going to be impacted. And, you know, you talk about um, drugs whose reimbursement is much more dependent on Medicare because of the populations that they serve. I I think that's a very important consideration and making sure that these aren't being disproportionately impacted. Because you can have, you know, I talked up front about the importance of a good development program, a good data set underlying this, and then a good commercial opportunity at the back end. You have indications right now that there's a lot of unmet need for and that there's a lot of good science happening around, but for which the reimbursement becomes a much more complicated situation. Absolutely. I think antibiotics is one that comes to mind where there's really a global need there. But as far as the U.S. and other geographies aligning on a reimbursement model that incentivizes that to the extent that it should be, that becomes a more complicated picture and really complicates things from an investor standpoint of thinking about how do you recognize the returns that you need to provide to your LPs in order to then invest in companies that are doing this right sort of work in that area. And not that it is a non-starter, but it just becomes a more complicated equation. So thinking about then the impact to uh, uh, indications that are served by Medicare, making sure that those, again, aren't disproportionately impacted in an adverse way to the patients. That's what this is all about in the end. Ultimately, yes. And again, this seems to have been somewhat ignored in the bill. It's, it's really odd to me. It just seemed like they were looking for a political win. And it just come <laughs> hell or high water, they were going to do it. It just That's just what it seemed to me. I think drug pricing is an easy thing to point at and yeah. say, this is too high and it's bad. And I think you <laughs> you probably have a hard time finding too many people who disagree with that comment, what to do about that and how to best do that without either upending an entire industry, disproportionately affecting vulnerable patient populations. Obviously, the devil's in the details there. Um, but you know you, you can't cram that sort of discussion into a tweet or a headline. <laughs> Bumper sticker. Exactly. <laughs> it's It's really problematic because... You know, I always get very concerned for simple solutions to extremely complex problems. <laughs> I don't know, call me cynical, but it's pretty rough. One of the things that I really enjoyed about our first meeting virtually in that little box called Zoom on our desktop <laughs> in, in, in Greece was your perspective on what's going on in the European market. I live in Belgium. We started the firm in Belgium. 
we've done a lot of elasticity calculations on the impact of pricing controls on biotech formation, intellectual property formation, European-based venture capital, which has basically been eviscerated for biotech in Europe. Everything is moving here. I mean, you can get some early stage deals. There's been no, virtually no growth above the rate of inflation and the size of deals in Europe is still running about 2.9 million per deal, which means it's extremely early stage. And we're just seeing an exodus of IP to the US. Are you concerned at all that we're going to start picking up some of these policies from Europe lock, stock and barrel without thinking about the consequences of them? I think we have certain advantages in the U.S. that hopefully prevents or delays, you know, that that sort of implementation. I think the EU, one of the advantages over there is that you have a lot of different geographies and different countries, and so I'll say a lot of different opportunity there. That's also the the other side of that is you have a lot of different markets that you have to work through, a lot of different considerations, and so commercializing in Europe is a much more complicated picture. Obviously, companies can be hugely successful doing that, but maybe to your point within here, you have to get to the point of commercializing as well in order for that to matter. I think in the US, the fact that we have comparatively a relatively streamlined regulatory process and commercialization process, uh, which is not to not to <laughs> say the commercialization over here is simple, but you know, you're, you're, you're dealing with a, a more confined set of parameters around that. I think that that helps us somewhat uh, when we talk about the sort of influences that you've seen in Europe coming to the US. I'd be surprised if in the near term we're going to see anything like the sort of shrinkage that you've seen in the market uh, over in the EU, just given the sort of base expectations that we have over here, given the sort of efficiencies that I've talked about, uh, given the sort of intellectual capital that continues to be generated in the US. Europe sort of led the way in terms of thinking about, uh, we'll say, value-based pricing or maybe patient-centric approaches to drug pricing, and they're bearing some of the consequence of that. But I think what we see is that the world is starting to slowly shift in that direction as well, as we see with these sorts of changes in the U.S. and the sort of dialogue that we're hearing there. So maybe they're paying a little bit of the innovator's price, but you have to expect that there's going to be some degree of equilibration over time in terms of, at least on the commercial side, how we're thinking about drug pricing and reimbursement from that, I'll call it value-based perspective, although I know that term encompasses a lot. I think there's the rhetoric around this, and then there's the reality when they say value-based pricing. You, you talk to the European HTAs, value-based pricing for Savaldi was zero. No, we don't want to pay for this. It's too expensive. And even to the point where a couple of officials called it immoral. This was a cure in 99.5% of all cases. And if you didn't use Savaldi, you were paying over $200,000 by the time per patient by the time you started calculating the annuitized risk of a liver transplant because peglin and interferon wasn't that effective. Because of the demographic shifts in Europe, by 2050, they're going to have two workers for every one pensioner. That's it. They have an enormous unfunded liabilities, essentially, against the pensions in particular. And the health ministers are just saying, cut price. Probably the best example you have recently is the COVID vaccines. The EU held their ground to say, we're going to save $10 a dose. We don't want to pay 24. We're going to pay half of that. And they did. They held out at the cost of not getting delivery of vaccines for another six to eight months, which meant that, for example, Belgium was shut down for another eight months, practically before that economy opened up. So they saved $200 million in vaccine cost for $6 billion in GDP. <laughs> <laughs> 
if these prices are getting so far apart between Europe and the U.S., do you ever see anything happening? This happened in Japan, where the Japanese were pushing down on pricing very aggressively, and then they started losing their sector, and they said, well, we better stop that. Do you see any of that changing from your portfolio? Are you seeing any movement in Europe, or is it just all one way right now? I mean, I think we're sort of where we are in Europe, but I think it's part of that ongoing evolution between, you know, let's get prices lower. On the other side of that, you have let's pay for value and realizing though then that... That means you have to pay more. (laughs) That means you have to pay more for the right products. And I think we're working towards uh, let's pay for value manageably. Yeah. And obviously that last word there, the manageably part is the big question mark of how do you go about doing that? Um, The consulting firm that I work for, one of the kind of break in the new hires exercises that we would do there would be to have them go into a pricing exercise. I believe it was around a gene therapy, but one of these curative treatments and, you know, go through and do all the research and come up with what seems to be a reasonable cost. And inevitably, folks would come up with a, you know, four, five, six million dollar cost for this because, well, you look at the lives that you're saving, you look at the procedures that you're saving, you look at all of this, and the message is that's right. If you crunch those numbers, also, that's never going to work. And yeah. so now what do you do? Um, it's really a question of trying to bridge that value gap between, you know, what is the value of a medicine? What's the value from day one is maybe another question, uh, especially if you're talking about some of these curative therapies. Well, it, it, it's hard for payers, and I, I can understand this, to say, well, you're getting treated today, and you're telling me that if this thing happens tomorrow or next year or these treatments that you would have otherwise received year after year are not happening, that's a little bit more uh, conceptual for us. Or perhaps if you're talking about, if you use, I think oncology is an easy example, if you say, well, you're showing great response right now, and we want to know truly how far out does that survival benefit, uh, how far out does that extend, that's a maturation of data question. And yeah. maybe reasonable minds can all agree that, oh, this really seems like it's doing a great thing. It seems like it's restoring the gene function or it's improving survival. But until you have the numbers on a page, how do you bridge that gap between the data today and the data tomorrow? I think that's an interesting question that... Uh, is sort of being considered out there in terms of how we think about reimbursement, how in terms of how we think about development programs and what you bring forth to these uh, uh, HTAs and the like. Um, all of which is to say, it feels like if we step back, we're sort of in the midst of an evolution. Uh, I think maybe the pendulum swung a bit far with how Europe is doing things these days, at least in certain geographies there. Um, and you're going to see that they maybe lose out on opportunities to get some medicines in place uh, as quick as possible. If you talk about the COVID vaccine, you talk about the Bluebird story over there as well. Yeah, which maybe we should touch on because I don't think we've really discussed it. You know, Bluebird Bio, um, they basically pulled out of Europe, lock, stock, and barrel. They said, we're leaving. And a lot of the European politicians sort of quietly, why did they leave? It's like, well, <laughs> do you want a list? <laughs> And it's tough when you have a lose-lose like that, because the company yeah. didn't win anything by pulling out of those markets, whether it's in you know, the public sentiment or the arena of public sentiment, or whether it's in, obviously, the areas of revenue as well. The countries and the patients there don't win either. You have regulators uh, or, or payers that you know look like they're being unwilling to negotiate, and you have patients that, in the end, are not receiving a treatment. And I say a treatment because this is something that has the data showing that it does actually provide treatment. This isn't a sort of hypothetical or an in-development drug. It's something that has data uh, supporting it as well. So when you get these sort of lose-lose, I think these are the catalysts for change to try and figure out, okay, like I said, drug prices should be lower. Great. Maybe we can agree on that. Uh, Value-based pricing makes sense in that, yes, you want to pay for value. How do you then find a way so that you don't have patients that are losing out on a drug, a company that's taking a beating for doing that? Uh, and instead, you're working towards a path forward for both. How much of your investment activity is EU-based versus U.S.-based right now? 
You know, that's a good question. We're majority U.S., but I would say it's not inconsequential in Europe. Any number I give you would be wrong, but it's yeah. a, a reasonable consideration of our portfolio takes place in the EU and Asia, for that matter. So if you make an investment, do they stay in Europe? Do you bring them here? What, what are the next steps then? Do they generally then set up shop in the U.S. somewhere? Our investments in Europe, and again, they're varied. Um, we've had ones that we've done over there that were specifically actually set up in Europe to commercialize in Europe, recognizing some of the unique challenges of that geography that we alluded to before, yeah. but recognizing the opportunity for products that have a good data set, uh, good impact on patients, to have an opportunity to move into that market. You know, For us, it's beneficial in that you take some of that product risk off the table, you maybe add a little bit more commercial risk, but you build the right team around that for the right reasons. You can go on the ground there and, and have success there. More of our transactions, there's, there's sort of the two-sided question of when you talk about being based in Europe, there's, is the country, or a company based in Europe, and is there our returns, our, our returns actually based in Europe and commercializing in that market? And that becomes a much more blended picture then. <laughs> yeah, but less and less of the profitability of the sector is being driven out of the EU market in general. True. Again, this is a broad brush, but we, we do see that there are several studies, our own work, we're seeing that 70, 80% of the general profitability of an asset is being driven out of the United States globally, which means that causes all sorts of problems operationally as well, because you have all sorts <laughs> of risk by having too much exposure to the EU market then. Exactly. The European Union has made a decision to open up the pharmaceutical legislation. They're, they're renegotiating it. And one of the things we're hearing is they want to redefine the term unmet medical need. They are trying to restrict how the term unmet medical need has been used to create accelerated approvals and things like that. In fact, one of the comments we've heard is that they want to restrict it to things that are quote-unquote curative. Now, the irony of that is that means Lipitor wouldn't be approved because it's not curative, and Savaldi would have been, even though it's exact <laughs> opposite from all the regulators would completely go crazy if that was what's happening. What would happen if we start seeing real, from your perspective, your business, what's going to happen if we start seeing huge divergence from regulatory approval and pathway analysis between the EU and the US? What, what happens if we go down this road? One of the big advantages that we have right now is from a regulatory standpoint, I'll start there, is the harmonization that exists between regions. And if we talk about that structurally, it's your ICH structure that goes into your dossiers in the US, in the EU, in Japan. And that provides certain efficiencies that allow us as investors and allow companies as developers to really be able to target a program. And yes, there's going to be some region-specific adjustments, but by and large, you're going to be working towards the same goal in different geographies. When you start to change those rules there, that's where things get very complicated and difficult choices need to be made. I mean, we already see that uh, a number of the programs we'll, we'll look at, maybe you have a global development program. And so you're working towards the same sort of patient population with the same product, and you're looking to treat the same disease and all of that. But you can see differences between the US regulators and the EU regulators as far as, if we give a, a sort of grand example, what that primary endpoint should be for those studies. And while maybe this seems to sound like a, a detail within the conduct of this program itself, it's very important for how those data are captured, for how they're analyzed on the back end, for the risk profile attached to that product, depending what endpoint is being looked at, for what it means then commercially, as far as what that data package, uh, how, how it resonates with the payers that it's going to be presented to. And so 
you know, we've seen no shortage of examples of companies that have to either develop two different stati uh, statistical analysis plans <sighs> in those different regions. Well, that's fun. <laughs> have to prioritize and yeah. you're getting down in some of the nitty gritty of it here. I mean, just thinking about how you size a study, even you're going to have different effect sizes depending on which endpoints you're looking at. And so a 500 patient study might show you really meaningful results on this endpoint, but you need 750 patients to show it on this other endpoint. To try and split that across geographies, there's companies that have the funding that can go and do that, that have the resourcing and internal expertise to do it. There's other companies that could bring treatments to both markets, but might have to prioritize one over the other, at least for the time being, until they can prove success in one and then move on to the next. And so when you lose that harmonization, you introduce, in many cases, some difficult compromises that are going to have to take place that in the end, I would argue, don't really benefit patients in the way that they should. To your unmet need comment uh, and to those considerations there, <laughs> this is always an amusing one because I think when we all step back, we all sort of know what unmet need looks like. And it then becomes much harder to come up with an actual definition, though, when right. you're trying to regulate that. Setting the bar at curative, though, that I, in my mind cuts out a lot of incremental innovation that needs to happen in between. And maybe that's a little oxymoron if we're talking about incremental innovation, but if you think about you know, curative, and you, you attach gene therapies to that. Well, what if you never work towards enzyme replacement therapies along the way, which in many ways for the right diseases are going to function in a similar way, but require that sort of chronic dosing. And so in effect, they're not curative in that sense. Lipitor was the fifth lipid lowering treatment to come in that class, the fifth. And it was by far the best. And that was incremental innovation. The other problem with the unmet medical need issue is that essentially it rules out 90% of the untreated orphan drug conditions at that point, which has already come under enormous attacks and scrutiny with right. the divergence between CMS and FDA on the adjuhelm monoclonal antibody ruling for Alzheimer's disease. Now you need to be curative. Part of the reason for you have the accelerated approval is to generate the evidence based on a surrogate endpoint, a surrogate marker. How much of your portfolio right now are orphan drugs if you're dealing mostly with these small companies? I'd imagine quite a bit. You know, again, I, I don't have numbers top of mind, but uh, I know at least a handful within our current portfolio sure. uh, fall in the rare disease space, and we've, we've worked with a number of companies in the past as well. I'd say it's an area of active engagement for us as well, uh, because you have a lot of those opportunities in terms of really connecting interesting data sets in ways that can align with our investment model and can benefit patients on the back end. Maybe I'll, I'll take this as a little bit of a segue to say, you know, we talk about reimbursement challenges and we, we talk about um, kind of policies that can influence those. I think something that's really unlocked a lot of potential opportunities for us in the U.S. at least has been the priority review voucher program. Sure. Um, can you explain that a little bit, please? That'd be great. Just the, the Yes, it's an interesting program. I don't think a lot of people are aware of it in, out there in the regular world. No, absolutely. So there's a few different flavors of it, but I'll focus on the one for rare pediatric sure. diseases. Basically, there's a designation you can get if you're developing a product to treat a severe rare pediatric disease. You can get a rare pediatric disease designation. If you can take your product through to approval and get approved, you'll get what's called a priority review voucher. This voucher in and of itself is something that can be used for a subsequent product to grant it an accelerated approval timeline, a faster uh, approval timeline or review timeline with FDA. That benefit is important for certain products, probably, and in most cases, typically not as much for the company, especially if they're a small company that developed this rare disease product. What's important is that they can be sold on a secondary market, and that can generate a windfall upon approval for these companies. 
So you could be a company that uh, is small, you go after a rare pediatric disease, and you know, maybe if we're talking uh, sales potential for that drug is only going to ever be in a very low range in the future. So you're never going to really be able to raise funds around the returns from that particular product from selling to patients and, and being able to provide that treatment. But you're able to sell this priority review voucher. And you can sell that to, in some cases, it'll be large pharma companies or, or other big biotech companies that really get a benefit out of that accelerated review process that can generate, we've seen it sort of equilibrate around $100 million or so windfall for these companies. That brings investors like us to the table. Uh, that brings opportunities for these companies to develop their pipelines more broadly and really move on to that next stage or further develop these products. And it's really, like I said, there are programs that we would not be able to take a look at as investors that we are able to because of the PRV program. And $100 million, I mean, let's be honest, that's a, a small to mid-sized orphan drug phase two moving into a phase three. I mean, that's real money. That's actually funding real development. I mean, that's that's real innovation cash at that point. Exactly. Exactly. And importantly, it's able to then point this money towards diseases that would otherwise not get addressed. Yeah. Um, like I said, there's a few different flavors of these PRVs. I think the orphan drug one, though, is one that calls a lot of attention and, and makes a lot of sense to a lot of folks. I also want to call out the fact that that's something that's present in the U.S., but is not currently yeah. present in the EU and really denies us the opportunity to look at and invest in programs over there that we might otherwise consider. And what you just brought up is a really important point, because there has been, until recently, a general belief in the public-private partnership in the United States, whether that be by Dole, looking at the commercialization of publicly funded research, whether that's the prescription drug benefit, whether that's Hatch-Waxman, where we started creating the generics market so that there would be a natural evolution of intellectual property, sort of a risk-reward benefit ratio that we could start looking at for development of new products. This all seemed really quite good, but there seems to now be a spin on this. Devin, we're pulling, you know, we're getting away from all of these incentives programs are seen as bad and evil and wrong. <laughs> I mean, why do you think, how are we getting here? Why are we here? Going back to some of our earlier conversation, I think too much gets caught up in the sound bites yeah. uh, for a somewhat reductionist answer. I mean, you focus on drug pricing and returns and all of that, and you see a $100 million sale for a PRV, and you see that a big pharma company is getting some benefit from it, and boy, that makes for a nasty headline if you combine those in the wrong way. I think a little bit of the focus has been taken away from the patients that are being benefited and how all of this really connects to that. How you have this PRV program, and yes, you're having $100 million that's getting transferred from one company to another, but that's $100 million that's making it possible to develop treatments for underserved patient populations with serious unmet medical needs. When we talk about some of these other acts that you've talked about here, it, it gets lost in the conversation around, well, what are drug prices today? And why were they put there? Why did the Congress decide to pass Hatch-Waxman? Why did it decide to pass Bidol? There was a whole good reason to do that, and that's because the U.S. only had 35% of the biopharma market then. Now it has 65%, and partially because those legislative decisions were made. And it's very bizarre to me that we're sort of throwing the baby out with the bathwater on a lot of this stuff. Agreed. One of the discussions that's been undergoing is the march and rights problem. And this is, you know, Secretary Becerra on Monday basically said, yes, we're going to look at march and rights Anything that has a tangential relationship to the NIH in some capacity or another that's been commercialized, we can take that back and start negotiating prices on that. We're going to march in and take that intellectual property back. As an investor <laughs> who's taking long-term <laughs> views on risk, and you guys say sometimes you operate on a 10-year window, that's very long for this sector. 
boy, oh boy, that would certainly change your calculus, wouldn't it? <laughs> if suddenly you have a margin component there where things could get sucked up by the government and suddenly drop in price 60% when you're not expecting it. No, agreed. I can't say I'm as familiar with this uh, proposal that's out there, but really, I mean, as a general rule, anything that introduces uncertainty to our returns is going to be something that's prob- uh, problematic. And that can work in both directions. There's a lot that we can structure around in our transactions. Uh, if it's uncertainty of time frame, uncertain events happening, or if it's uncertainty on sales levels and things like that. But when you talk about sort of the fundamental ownership of a product being something that's in question, that introduces uncertainty that, I'll say at least to my simple mind, I can't think of a way to structure around. <laughs> Your mind's not that simple, Devin. <laughs> there was a letter from United Healthcare that got leaked to the public in 2019 where the aforementioned PCSK9 class of gene therapy, monoclonal antibody therapies to treat high blood pressure, Sanofi and Amgen both had PCSK9s out, and they said, look, we're going to lower the price a lot. And United Healthcare said, no, you're going to pay us the same revenue cut for another 24 months, regardless of what price you're taking. If you're essentially putting a government loss of exclusivity event, and you're going to have a 30% mandated price cut based on this quote-unquote negotiation, and the PBMs don't budge, this is going to have a much, much bigger impact on your balance sheet. Agreed. If the PBMs don't budge, I guess I'll start by saying something nice and then I'll get into the rest here. But <laughs> I can understand their consideration when you talk about the United Healthcare story there of, you know, we just talked about uncertainty and yeah. that being something that investors hate. I can understand them wanting some time in order to account for changes and not have to change years? in the spot. <laughs> Two years. I make no comments on their time frame. <laughs> but conceptually, I can understand that piece. The rest of it, though, the rest of it here, first of all, what we have is we have a time frame that is already locked in place. And so you would hope that PBMs can get aligned with that time frame and uh, kind of work within the industry as it's being constructed as a result of the IRA. I, I think there's a broader conversation around really the transparency of this entire pricing model. Yeah. And I mean, we, we live this stuff day in and day out. You know, we're doing our diligences and constructing our forecasts. We're talking to payers and PBMs and the like. And hell if I can say that it all makes sense. Um, and if it doesn't make sense to me, if it, if it doesn't make as much sense as it should to you, like we are the people that this should be, this should be completely clear to. But I mean, we will, we will run processes on products and just figuring out how it's getting reimbursed and who the players are in that process sometimes is half, if not more of the legwork of going through. I, I, I'm willing to say there needs to be some greater transparency because it's confusing even to the folks in the industry. And then you can only imagine to people who are consuming this news as consumers instead and trying to figure out, well, who's the bad guy? Is there a bad guy? How does this work? And what do you mean a rebate is going somewhere in order to pay for something out in left field over there? Um, there there's no real specific call to action within my, my statement here, except to say that when you make something as obscure and convoluted as this pricing models become with PBMs included in the process there, it's going to lead to both inherent confusion and an inability of uh, generalists and the public to really be able to focus in on where the issues lie and where the changes need to happen. I think from the standpoint of the the congressional folks on the Hill, this is sort of the equivalent of whacking a hornet's nest with a stick. <laughs> and 
the end result is all you just get is a bunch of hornets flying around and then you have to run away. I, I think you, when you start opening, prying this open, it just becomes so complex so quickly because of the nature of the system. And then you look at those premiums. And the fact is 95% of your over 65 voters are impacted by the premiums, not necessarily the point of sale impact of buying an on-patent drug. That's the problem. It becomes an election, a vote issue, unfortunately. Agreed. Agreed. And I think really what challenges the industry is the fact that a lot of this rolls up to a top line list price. Right. And it's easy for folks like us to sit here and say, oh, well, list price, what does that really matter? You know, there's so many rebates and discounts happening on the back end. And what trickles through to the consumer? What is that actually? How many people are actually paying that list price? But there's so much complexity that's built in with that, and, and and just so much that doesn't translate again to the general public. If we're talking about this as a sort of political election issue and as a consumer issue, and frankly, from our own standpoint, I mean, just of trying to understand what's reasonable pricing and trying to implement that in a way that's as effective as possible. You have a lot of different, like you said, rational actors along the way. But is the entire system rational or not is the question. Yeah. And the problem is that, okay, you can say, well, there's a discount of 60%. The company's only getting 40% of that revenue, particularly in the insulin class. That's fine. But if you're the person who's going to that point of sale and your out of pocket is calculated on that list price. Exactly. Because that's what the law says. And then there's all sorts of bottom feeders on the other end of that, taking that revenue and spending it somewhere else. That That's the problem, I think. That's where all the hostility now at the drug, particularly at the biopharma sector, is coming from. It's because you know, the biopharma sector is saying that, look, we're getting 50 cents on the dollar here, and we're getting beat up in the press about this. Meanwhile, Medicare is using this money to subsidize premiums for people who aren't sick. It's bizarre. We're in aggressive agreement. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you what, Devin, if you and I could figure this out, we, we, we wouldn't be sitting here right now. The We'd world's be... <laughs> been waiting for us to be in this room at this moment. God, no kidding. It's a mess. It's an absolute mess. Everything's sort of hitting at once right now. There's so much going on. I've never seen so much turmoil. Where do you think things are going to be in two years? I, I wish 24 months was a longer time frame. I guess I I'll start with that, right? There's, it's going to be ages to get there, um, but it's also kind of the blink of an eye when you talk about biotech development or biopharma development. It's been an interesting time looking back a couple of years because you had, let me put it this way, our dinner table conversations have changed a lot, and the ability <laughs> to talk about this industry. Uh, with COVID going through, with people understanding, I think, generally a little bit more about what that process looks like to bring a product to market uh, with everybody following the COVID vaccine and its development, or the COVID vaccines and their development. We've seen a correction in the markets as far as valuation goes. I think there's a lot of inflated optimism around, great, well, we, we've seen how this works. There's, you know, biotech is saving the world right now, and so let's go after things that extremely early stages. Let's take these companies public. Let's value these as, as generalist investors and the general public and the like. Hopefully, what I would hope to see in the next two years is a little bit more of an equilibration. We're in a real valley right now in terms of um, sort of how these companies are being valued on the public markets. Um, I think with the election cycle being what it is, you have biopharma is taking a bit of a beating, as we've talked about here, in terms of public perception. I'm hopeful that what we can get back to is I would say more of a steady state uh, and understanding, an increased understanding around both what reasonable drug pricing looks like and hopefully the right changes put in place to start uh, continuing to move the industry in that direction. I'm hopeful that what you get is a little bit more focus on substantiated value within these companies. Um, it's important to have hope at the beginning of the pipeline uh, and have you know big scientific ideas that are invested in by the right investors there, and I'll say you need your early stage venture capitalists and the like. 
but hopefully we can get as a transition towards really uh, pulling forward the winners from there, uh, having the public get behind the right sort of companies when we talk about the public markets and really be able to select that next crop of good opportunities coming through. Devin, uh, always been a fan of NovaQuest Capital Management. I think you guys do damn fine work. It's been really great having a chance to speak with you. Thank you for your hospitality and uh, good luck. No, thank you, Dwayne. Appreciate it. The executive producer of the Vital Health Podcast is Dwayne Schultes. Our editor is Jonathan Ballin. Our project manager is Gwen O'Laughlin. This Vital Health Podcast is a production of Vital Transformation, LLC, copyright 2022.